it was like a one hour delay for me so i i just couldn't bring myself to to watch it for a while and then everyone started tweeting about it and then i was like we're gonna have to do a podcast (laughs) (laughs) listeners the pain we go through in order to provide for you uh, should not be underestimated we we sit there we listen for hours and hours just so we can bring you our half-baked thoughts and deep insights Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and Emma Revel, the head of public affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. This week, we'll be discussing the Cummings COVID claims, Great British Railways, and the Australia-UK free trade deal. Dominic Cummings' evidence to Parliament has provided explosive revelations, or has it, question mark, about the systematic leadership and state failures around COVID-19. So I guess we can maybe start with with the uh, question mark that I inserted into my introduction there. Um, <laughs> what are Cummings' most striking claims? What sort of things have we learned that, that we didn't know before here? I mean, I guess the most difficult thing is is the latter. What have we learned that we didn't know before? And government wasn't particularly prepared. Well, we did know that. We've got a bit more evidence now, but we did know that. Things were very dysfunctional. Again, we knew that. And a lot of the detail, in fact, okay, maybe we didn't know a couple of weeks ago, but Dominic Cummings has spent the last, what, eight days, I think, in the never-ending Twitter thread of doom, that just every time I open Twitter, there's three more thoughts from Dominic Cummings and a graph on a whiteboard. So a lot of it wasn't new. It was sort of extra detail around what he'd actually already said. And I think if I was, you know, one of the select committee chairs yesterday, I'd probably be a little bit annoyed that he spent the the week prior to his appearance telling everyone what he was going to say anyway. That sort of diminishes the point of coming to give evidence, surely. Yeah, there was there was a lot of pre-briefing going on to the lobby around this. That actually made most of the stuff kind of not a, a surprise to many people's ears but I I think it's fair to say that a lot of the coverage certainly has focused on him kind of airing his dirty laundry and and bad mouthing the health secretary Matt Hancock and obviously the prime minister um, Boris Johnson as well Um, but Matthew do you think this is actually the most relevant part or is this just a case of journalists seizing on some some juicy tea in terms of juicy tea i think covers has definitely spilled it when it comes to his feelings towards Matt Hancock honestly I I want to know what Hancock did to Dominic Cummings to deserve the wrath of the (laughs) constant, constant uh, shade that was being thrown. It started with, you know, there are about 10 to 15 reasons he should have been fired. Everyone wanted him to be fired. He lied about everything. The extent to which that was a revelation that was quite interesting in terms of some of the details. Hancock saying, we're ready with PPE, that being a complete disaster. The failure when in January and February when it... Hancock saying, oh, we're all ready for a pandemic, we're ready to go, the plans there obviously was not. Cummings being willing to say that the, the health secretary lied about the strategy and the claim there wasn't a herd immunity strategy when there was. I think we already knew that the government's playing semantics with that point, so it wasn't exactly a revelation. I think Cummings saying that he, he doesn't believe the guy he, he worked for and got elected more or less is fit for office is, is shocking in itself as a revelation. But I think you're right, Daniel, that in a sense, what is most shocking, and, and I, I think we've said this before and we've thought about this before, but it, it's it's interesting coming from Cummings' mouth, is the fact that it's not 
in a, in a deeper sense, it's actually not about Boris or Hancock. Now, everyone's going to focus on all those comments. They were some of the most spicy and saucy, and everyone loves personalities in politics. But there seems to be quite a deep malaise at the heart of the state, of what the government's ability to do in so many ways failed. And we know the specific ways that they failed. They failed because they weren't properly prepared. They failed on borders. They failed on testing. They failed sending people back to care homes untested. And they made those mistakes repeatedly. But we actually don't quite understand. I think this is something I I don't think Cummings was able to articulate. Maybe he doesn't even know, which is why is the state such a mess? Like, what is the underlying institutional reason? Now, we're not going to make the exact same mistakes again, but we will make mistakes in future. And the state will keep in failing if we cannot answer the question of why, what is fundamentally wrong with the state? Yeah, there's something to me here that that, the kind of... uh over focus almost on the personalities behind this now as much as i'm loath to admit this i think that if it wasn't matt hancock in the same position then we would still have similar levels of failings now obviously different personalities do have an influence over over policy making and the response to the crisis but i think you're right matthew that this isn't just about the people that happen to be in charge it's about the the actual system of governance that they were in charge of in the first place. And I don't think any amount of kind of personnel changes or whatever is necessarily going to to have that much of an impact here. I guess, Emma, going to you, some of the the kind of criticisms that were leveled, um, whether it's around lack of PPE procurement, whether it's around the kind of failure to close the borders or some of the failure to be led by uh, data effectively, what are the sort of lessons that you see immediately springing out here about how Britain could have better responded to COVID-19 that that Cummings' comments um, indicated? Yeah, I think the fact that all of this has come from Dominic Cummings makes it especially complicated to drill down into the lessons because he is such a divisive figure and there's so much else going on. Uh, You know, people have talked about, oh, well, the British public don't really trust him because they what they know of Dominic Cummings is only that he's that guy that broke the rules and drove to that castle. So, Mm. you know, it doesn't necessarily cut through or they don't necessarily believe everything he's saying. And he is operating a bit of a sort of scorched earth, I'm going to take everyone else down with me kind of kind of attitude. But that runs a very real risk of diminishing the very concrete points he's making that, you know, we, we weren't prepared. You know, the, the Department for Education certainly wasn't prepared. Not It's not just the health department or anything like that. You know, we, we weren't prepared in a whole different set of ways. So, I mean, Cummings came into government even pre-pandemic. You know, he said he wanted to do things like reform the civil service, make it more accountable, more reactive, more responsive, which is, you know, something a hell of a lot of people agree with. And the pandemic certainly has shown the ways that the civil service and government institutions at all different levels whether it's the department of health public health england the department of education weren't as responsive as reactive as willing to learn from international examples as they could or should have been um and dominic cummings was making that case back in in 2019 and probably before so it's a bit of a shame i suppose that this came so soon if pandemic had hit a couple of years from now and he'd been able to make the reforms and the changes he wanted to make there's a chance we may have been more reactive but at the same time the way that Cummings has delivered his marathon testimony yesterday and his attitude towards working with others you know he's not someone who's very collaborative 
I think he sees through the politics of things, which is good because he can cut to the heart of the problem. But at the same time, he doesn't exactly bring friends on board to help him deliver his outcomes. So it is a shame that he wasn't able to make these changes um, before. We may have been in a better place if he was. But at the same time, his personality isn't necessarily suited to bringing people along with him. So there's a chance that the fact that he is the person delivering this and saying this is why the civil service has failed because it comes from him means some people are more likely to dismiss it. Yeah, I think in in many ways, Cummings is a a very problematic messenger for what is quite an important message. And there are quite a number of ways in which he he was sympathetic, but in other ways, he was making some quite absurd claims. Now, um, obviously, he has a bit of a, a personal issue with Boris and Hancock, but his unwillingness to say anything negative about Rishi seems quite notable. And then that makes me think that there's some bias and some game playing going on there. And and I think Rishi Broadley has done a good job, but I, I think there are criticisms to be made. He's changing stories around why he left London. I mean, if he lied when he last did a big presentation for the media, what is he manipulating or directing this time? He has a sense in which he's on the side of the angels, but very powerful at the central government, but unable to influence in the right direction. And it's, it's not... Maybe maybe that's true, his claim basically, oh, I knew the right things. And he does apologise as well about particularly not being able to push through, you know, but I knew what was going on, but I didn't quite push them. I didn't have quite have the confidence to do it. Maybe that's true, but it just seems like he he was there. He should have, if he if he did have the foresight that he now claims that he had, he should have been able to do it. But I think most worryingly, there were two other things, which, which is his sense about political power. It's, it's, you know, if only there was a dictator who could do things um and this is this is where I get really worried about Cummings, which I think he's a bit of a, you know, in an Adam Smithian sense, kind of a, a madder machine who thinks he can move the chess pieces around and um, direct government and direct society. Now, he couldn't actually do that in practice because government is such a big, complex machine. And he, as you've said, Emma, he, he, he puts people off. And then he also says, oh, I was trying to, just before I left, I was trying to create these structures around Boris Johnson so that he couldn't make decisions. And Boris was unhappy. And he was, he was, I was undermining him like, Yes, he's the Prime Minister. I mean, even if you think Boris is dumb and wrong and stupid, he's still the one who has political accountability. Advisors advise ministers decide. I, I think it was quite absurd for, for Cummings to, to try to claim that it was in some way morally righteous to undermine the person he works for. Yeah, it, it's an odd conclusion to draw. If you spend most of your, your inquiry giving evidence as to specific personal failures of people very high up in the machinery of government and then claim that one of the solutions is to give more power to a single person in government. It, yeah, it, it just doesn't really work very well for me. And it doesn't sit well with some of his other, I think, quite valid criticisms around over-centralization and bureaucracy getting in the way. Now, on the one hand, you can say, oh, sure, like a, a dictator can cut through bureaucracy or something like that. But the key problem here is is that a lot of power is concentrated in people who clearly didn't know what they were doing in the specific moment. So it doesn't seem like a very good kind of solution that he proposes to me. But I, I guess that this comes to the broader question of, well, Cummings has been quite good in this inquiry, love him or loathe him in diagnosing some of the problems. But I think other than why don't we just appoint a dictator, he's been quite light on the, the actual solutions that we can draw around kind of combating some of these problems, whether it is groupthink or over-centralization or or um, the preponderance of, of bureaucracy that seems to have been particularly bad at delaying some of the UK's response to the pandemic. So what are the sort of things that we can do, actual concrete things that don't involve um, a British dictator? Well, 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 if I'm the dictator, I, I might have some sympathies for the idea 
idea. Let's not completely rule that out as an option. Uh, I, I mean, in all in all seriousness, I, I I don't think I know the answer to that question. And we've been talking quite a lot at the ASO over the last year about state failure, about state capacity, of what it means to have a capable state. I think what we saw was um, size doesn't matter. So particularly in the UK or you know a bunch of countries in the US, um, a, a big state that or a big level of spending on healthcare isn't necessarily what led to a particularly strong response to COVID. It was um, some of the, the relatively nimble, smaller governments in Singapore or Taiwan that were able to see and identify the threat and have systems and processes in place to respond to them. And that, that seemed like, well, you have a plan, but also you're willing to respond quickly. And it seems that the speed at which the British state operates is very slow. And we got, I think we got that a lot from Cummings, the sense in which there was no plan for uh, a pan- pandemic realistically, and there was no plan to do specific things. And they couldn't, they couldn't feel like they could just do it. I mean, it seems like a lot of other in a lot of other contexts, you just say, okay, we're announcing today that if you've got symptoms, you should quarantine at home. And they took a whole week unnecessarily to announce to say, if you have any symptoms of a cough or cold or flu, just stay at home as a, the simplest possible thing, which is take some personal responsibility. Um, they still were not advising that. And it seems crazy they didn't just do that and they, they waited a week. So it seems like there's, there's a speed thing, there's a dynamism thing that when the state is so big, the machinery is so complex. There's so many people trying to have a play. You need clear clear structures, not a dictator, but clear um, hierarchical structures with someone who's in charge, who's able to make decisions and able to do that relatively quickly in response to an emerging threat and being aware of that. I don't know specifically how you create those structures, but it seems like we should be spending a lot of time and effort trying to look at um, the effective bureaucracies in Singapore, in Taiwan, in South Korea, who used to look to us, of course, you know, it was, it was you know, the, the Bismarckian German state and the British state and whatever else that at one point were um, shockingly few people, you know, running huge swathes of the planet. So they, they've clearly learned something and, and picked up something about that historically um, Britain did quite well and is struggling to do today. And I think we can probably relearn from them what they're doing quite well. Um, I'd also like to bring over a lot of their top bureaucrats just bring them into the system and pay them whatever they need to be paid in order to run systems and set things up and restructure i think one of the most disappointing things that you know more specifically on the public health front is that so the government's abolishing public health england they created the national institute for health protection but they put jenny harris in charge someone who is of the public health bureaucracy 100 has no practical outside experience when they should have said who's the top person in Taiwan who's the top person in Singapore let's get them to head up our new National Institute of Health Protection so that if we are properly prepared for a pandemic in the way they were properly prepared for a pandemic and it seems like you, you do sometimes get a recruit from outside in order to achieve that. Well I mean Dominic Cummings did praise the vaccine task force and Kate Bingham and saying look everyone knew you know she was the person in charge everyone knew what was happening it all came from her it was very clear very well set out and as we can all see you know the vaccine rollout has been probably the the most successful thing that that Britain's done in the last year so there's certainly yeah a lot to be said for bringing in someone with outside experience that is relevant and saying you know please help us because you know if we try and run this from within the British civil service machine we don't necessarily always get the best outcomes. I think that as well as the kind of the, the policy change aspect here, there's also a, a broader cultural aspect that we need to kind of re-examine. So there's a couple of things that come to mind here. The first is, is Cummings talking about how the kind of behavioral scientists just assumed that people would not comply with or, or would be super, super against any sort of lockdown. And that delayed lockdown by quite a significant time and, and quite clearly um, cost lives in the, the initial stages of 
the pandemic. So there's kind of a, a problem when it comes to, to academia there of, of um, maybe just assuming things to be true without very much evidence at all. Uh, and there's also the, the kind of the media side of things as well. So I remember in, I can't remember how far through it was, but he was talking about how on, on one particular day, half of um, number 10 were concerned about a story related to the prime minister's girlfriend's dog. <laughs> and and part of me just thinks that, you know, that there seems to be such a, a kind of, and, and this is the, the media's issue as well as, um, as well as the kind of political establishment. There's, there's such an issue with making sure that like day-to-day stories about the government are, are solid at the expense of thinking about such an obvious and pressing issue as, as a, pandemic that, that something needs to change there as well but i think on the the note about less time spent on dogs and, and more time spent on dealing with infectious diseases uh it's probably time to move on to our next topic which is of course the australia uk free trade deal the united kingdom's proposed free trade agreement with australia has come under intense opposition over concerns about beef flooding the british market luckily not infectious diseases flooding the British market, though. National Farmers Union President Minette Batters has warned the deal could spell the end of British farming. Duh, duh, duh. I, I think to start with, um, it, the political context of this proposed trade deal is is quite interesting. And I, I think that the first question is, what is the kind of, in British politics, this mythic idea about signing a free trade deal with Australia after Brexit? And why is this such a priority for, for the UK, Emma? It is a bit of a strange one because there are other countries, no offence to Australia, where signing a free trade Deeply deal offended. would bring would, would would bring more economic benefit. But I think it's a kind of it's a shared cultural identity between the UK and Australia. And I think when we talk about, you know, reaching beyond the European Union, looking at the world as a whole, lots of people like to talk about the Commonwealth and invoke, you know, we need to have better relationships with the Commonwealth countries, not just focus on the EU. And the, Australia is, I think, the most uh, easy to wrap heads around for Britain. You know, lots of people have been, lots of people have family connections. It, the, the ties beyond trade, a cultural ties, are particularly strong between the two countries. So I think in that respect, you know, it, there are economic benefits as well, but I think it, it is held up from from that aspect as, you know, we would like to do this one quite soon because, yeah, it has, it has that additional resonance that a, a trade deal with uh, a Central African country or, or, or similar doesn't, doesn't resonate in quite the same way. Yeah. And this has the potential to be the, the UK's first major post-Brexit trade deal, not just an upgrade or continuation of a previous deal, but something that is a sign that the UK is getting something different and unique out of Brexit. And there are a, a bunch of industries and a bunch of potential benefits, particularly around financial services, digital trade, non-discrimination in public sector contracts. One of the ASI's favourites is about free movement between Australia and the UK, um, which tends to get quite high levels of support. Um, I want access to Tim Tams, tariff-free <laughs> uh, in supermarkets. Same. One of the UK's biggest exports to Australia is cars. So removing tariffs on uh, imported cars into Australia from the UK, particularly since Australia doesn't actually even make cars anymore, could be quite a positive move, quite a straightforward move. And I think there's even the broader economic benefit there is is the potential to join the CPTPP, which is the, the kind of comprehensive trade deal among specific RIM countries, joining a trade deal with Australia is a good way to get Australia's support to, to join that broader deal, which which will provide um, additional economic benefits. On the other hand, though, Daniel, uh, there is all this uh, at least apparent opposition forming uh, from the NF, our friends in the NFU, 
uh, about the, the beef issue and beef flooding. Do you think that's going to end the chances of this deal happening? Are you pessimistic? Are you confident? Yeah, our friends and colleagues at the, the NFU are complaining about the apparent tsunami of beef that's going to wash over our shores and, and drown us all in, in terrible Australian beef. Um, no, I I think that obviously the, the, the kind of agricultural lobby in the UK is and has always been historically important and strong when it comes to, to shaping uh, free trade deals and, and domestic policy here. But I'm fairly optimistic here. I mean, just I, I'm optimistic partially based on the the kind of stated intentions of the people involved in negotiating this free trade deal and the way that it seems to be going so far, but mainly because it's just such a weak objection, right? The, the headline objection from the NFU is that there's going to be too much, uh, our market's going to be flooded with um, with Australian beef and, and other products and British, British producers just aren't going to be able to compete. But this just clearly isn't the case. Even if we had a huge increase in the proportion of Australian beef that gets imported to the UK overnight, we still wouldn't have Australian beef make up a significant portion of our beef market. Um, it's just not that significant mm. a portion um, when it comes to, to this particular area. And I think the real issue that they have, and, and this has kind of been mentioned a little bit, but it, it doesn't seem to be as well known, is the precedent setting of a potential free trade deal on agricultural products and opening up markets here. Whilst Australia might not um, flood our shores with um, cheap and delicious foreign meats, uh, God forbid, what a terrible scenario. It is the case that it will set down a precedent for future free trade deals to actually do the same and open up some of our, our agricultural markets. Of course, for me, from a, you know, a free marketeer, pro-free trading perspective, that's fantastic. But I can see why, obviously, the kind of vested interests in this area are not a great fan of that prospect. And they want to kind of nip this in the bud, I think, before it takes hold in other areas of our trade policy and, and post-Brexit trade negotiation. Yeah, I, I think in a sense, the NFU has, have overplayed their hands here by making such ridiculous claims about Australian beef flooding the market. Um, and I think that it's kind of slightly to click that the NFU is a trade union. They, they represent a particular subset mm. of farmers who are scared of the competition. Uh, and it, it's not really the government's role to protect them from competition, from what consumers choose to purchase. And, and you're absolutely right, Daniel, that at the moment, uh, Australian beef makes up really a tiny, like 0.1% proportion. It is um, the, at the top end of the Australian market that gets exported to the UK because it's obviously quite expensive to ship over. So you're not going to be able to mass compete. Australian beef can't mass compete with, with British produced beef. Uh, it, it's really going to be a, a quality product at a slightly lower price and, and more availability of it. And then the, the NFU just makes up all these scare stories and all these lies about Australian animal standards, which are world leading, the equivalent of the UK, make all, up all these lies about farming practices that don't actually apply. So one of the big claims is, well, Australians use hormone enhanced beef. Now, there's nothing wrong with using hormone enhanced beef, but in any case, Australia operates a separate supply chain for beef that it exports to the EU and the UK that has no hormone um, additives. And there's no intention to ask the UK to accept anything other than that. So Australian beef producers will produce to precisely the same standards as the UK. So they won't be in an advantageous position in, in the market. So it does, it does feel like it, it's been overplayed as a hand and it won't have a broader impact. But, but Emma, I, I think interesting how this plays into this idea that there's some contradiction at the heart of Brexit between the kind of free trading side 
um, on the one hand, the you know the Dan Hannans of the world uh, versus the the kind of left behind communities who need to be protected from globalization and the kind of Faragean worldview, let's say. Do you think this is the case where we're really kind of defining Brexit or is that always a bit of a false dichotomy? No, I think it's always been there. And I think the pandemic has played into that because, you know, you have um, people uh, who previously had been very pro, you know, free trade suddenly retreating into kind of protectionism and saying, oh, well, the pandemic shows us the the weaknesses in global supply chains and we need to grow more of our own food, make more, you know, stop importing quite so much. So it's not just about Brexit. You know, the pandemic has sort of uh, exacerbated that argument. I think we're all very familiar with the problem here, which is that the benefits are very dispersed and the losses are very concentrated. And this is true, you know, not just when it comes to to free trade and whether beef farmers are going to lose out. It comes to, you know, when we talk about the steel industry, for example, you know, do we need to nationalise the steel industry to protect Port Talbot and Scunthorpe and, and, you know, jobs in those constituencies? And it's very difficult for us, I think, to make the argument because the other side can make a very emotive one. You can talk to a farmer who has a relatively small uh, beef um, farm in the UK. They can talk about how their father ran it, their grandfather run it. They, were, you know, it's a part of the community. That's a very emotive argument. And when the NFU and others can turn around and say, "Well, actually, you know, we're going to destroy this man's business if we save, uh, if we sign a trade deal with Australia," that's a very difficult thing to to argue against because you know on our side of the ledger you've you've got facts you've got economics you've got you know lower prices for the consumer and that's all great but the other side has family run farms and smiling little kids who go I want to inherit this farm from my dad one day like he did from his and it it becomes a very difficult battle because we're, we're not fighting in the same place there's if, if it was economic arguments on both sides or emotive arguments on both sides, I think it would be a fair fight. But it, as it is, the free marketeers and protectionists uh, are fighting on, on different different playing fields, I suppose. I'm, I'm reminded here, this is a strange kind of thing to, to think of when we're talking about free trade deals and, um, and farmers, but I'm reminded of what happened with medical cannabis in the UK, where we had 10, 20 years of wonks like us making the strong economic and political arguments around this in a a very dispassionate way a lot of the time and of course nothing happened all it took was a uh, a very powerful emotive story around uh, Billy Caldwell and a front page in a few of the newspapers and suddenly everything changed and it just just talking about this reminded me of it and how it's kind of it's a perennial frustration for me in a way that it seems a strange thing to be frustrated by but we we have to work with with human nature um and human nature is to care a lot about i am robot daniel exactly. i hate human nature <laughs> exactly why, why can't people just think in why can we not use bentham utilitarian calculation yeah that's it's exactly matthew i couldn't have put it better myself it's almost like listening to myself back and on the podcast <laughs> so it's what your voice sounds like anyway, so. <laughs> only when i'm having mic troubles hopefully but uh <laughs> well in, in a sense though th- this is part of the kind of broader history of of fights within this country about free trade and protectionism i mean i can't help but always think back to the corn laws and, and the the peelite decision that obviously very much against the landed interests but for, for the manufacturers and the industrialists i did think it was quite interesting that at least um the ift Institute for free trade did a poll of 
Tory switches in red wall suites or Tory, sorry, I should say Tory voters in red wall seats um, and found that 90% would support a free trade deal. Now, I don't know if they specifically asked about the beef issue, um, although I, I can say watch this space uh, from the ASI if, if you're interested in, in that particular question. But I'd be interested to see whether or not they're, they're kind of a loud, annoying lobby group or whether or not in the end the conclusion is most people really don't care that much where the food comes from. Maybe they say they do, but the reveal preference is that they don't that much since the vast majority of food in this country is, of course, important. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't actually reduce uh, food security. It actually increases food security because it diversifies where your food's coming from. And it also can actually have a lesser environmental impact because most of the environmental impact from food is not in transport. it's, It's in how it's produced. I think as well, we have to, just coming back to this question of the the concentrated costs and dispersed benefits, there is a pretty strong free market response in dealing with some of those concentrated costs as well. I mean, part of it is obviously looking at um, things like transition periods that soften the blow. In this case, we're looking at around a a 15-year proposed transition period. Although even that, there's another side to this as well. And it's that in a lot of cases this sort of competition can be a huge boost, a huge efficiency boost to domestic standards of production and actually help to make industries, in this case, agriculture, more innovative, more willing to utilize new technologies and in some cases become world leading. And the the kind of classic example in this debate that's always pointed to, and I think rightly, is New Zealand in, I think, the the mid 1980s that they they decided to just kind of cut all farm subsidies for a very short period i could be wrong here but i I don't think that there was much in the way of like an extended transition period no no new zealand famously very quickly flipped to free trade and rather than the industry being completely destroyed by foreign competition it became a lot more efficient is actually a bigger part of the new zealand economy than it was historically right and it's not like these new efficient farmers were a completely new set of people right like these were the same people that had been farming in new zealand previously under the the high subsidy regime and lo and behold granted that some years of hardship in between and we we shouldn't ignore that and we should have measures in place um to to try and, and make sure that that isn't too uh too harmful if possible but at the end of the day these same people ended up becoming extremely efficient innovative technologically advanced farmers that mm. that lead the world um and i think that that kind of often we we don't really think about that optimistic vision of for the producers themselves post free trade yeah i think there's also a big optimistic um narrative that i'd like to see the nfu focus on which is what opportunities are there for exporting from the uk I mean, one of the, the major arguments Australia is making is we're not about to flood the UK with beef because we already have quite substantial export markets and a growing middle class right across uh, the Asia Pacific region. And the UK has a very strong brand and I have no doubt British produce sold into that market could do very well. But if you don't think about those opportunities, you don't take them out, you're not, you're not going to achieve them. If all your focus is on domestic production, domestic protection, being relatively inefficient, a very inwardly focused industry rather than an outwardly focused industry, um, you're not going to be able to achieve as much. A question for you, Lesh, from the Australian perspective. Is there the same level of pushback in Australia when it comes to this? Because obviously over here, we've got this kind of, oh, we're at risk of being flooded by foreign goods thing. And yet mm. there are obviously two countries negotiating this free trade deal. Right. Are we the ones that are being the, the kind of the real refuseniks here? Or is there actually a, a similar sort of groundswell of, of protectionist opposition in, in Australia too? So, so the National Farmers Federation has a very different philosophy to the NFU, which is that they 
uh, talking about that outward-looking perspective. The, the NFF in Australia is a very outward-looking organisation that sees global opportunities. Um, Australia produces 130% of the food that it needs. So it's a big exporting country when it comes to, to food. And, and as a result of that, the, the whole disposition is sign these free, free trade deals. That's mm. great news. The question becomes more about, from Australia's perspective, what is a reasonable deal when it comes to access? So this is the, the kind of 15-year question that the UK is now proposing. And I don't know if Australia wants to accept that or how that's going to be negotiated down, that feels like an effort by the UK to kind of push the issue into the future by having this very long transition period, rather than dealing with the fundamentals of it, which is the last kind of thing I want to think about here, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on it, Emma, about how you deal with these kind of economic transitions. We, we know not just a result of trade, but particularly perhaps more so a result of technology and innovation. You have a, a very uh, dynamic labour market that unfortunately leaves some people behind. Um, and if you are a farmer who's lost their job or if you work, you know, the example we're talking a lot about is recently is British Steel, um, steel workers and, and them losing jobs. What what kind of policies should the government have in response to that? Um, this government's been leaning towards subsidising and, and in the past and in the past protecting people from competition. Is there a better model we can have to help individuals rather than trying to um, subsidise businesses? In terms of farming, you know, in this country, you can make a lot more profit if you farm dairy, for example, than if you farm beef. And that is an, a massive transition for a farmer to to swap, you know, the type of farming that they do. We're not saying, OK, you should actually retrain as a, as a banker or a teacher or whatever. You can stay as a farmer. You can live in the same place, quite probably, um, because the land can still be used for a different purpose. It's just adapting to a different type of farming or diversifying your farm. So instead of being exclusively a beef farmer, maybe you do a couple of other different types of of product at the same time um i I really wish the nfu were more positive uh, and encouraging and and, you know did talk more about the different types of ways that farmers can can utilize their their land their experience their skills because especially when we talk about family farms there is a a hell of a lot of experience and skill that is passed down there and it would be a shame if that was wasted so it it should definitely be repurposed in a different way steel it's a little bit trickier because they tend to be you know incredibly concentrated jobs and, and probably quite highly skilled it's it's quite hard to be a different kind of steel worker but I would like to see government offering decentralizing tax would be incredibly helpful if if you have a region that has um, very old industry like steel for example and it is in decline in the UK then in allowing that area to offer tax breaks to encourage other types of business not necessarily the same but different types of manufacturing um, into that region and say you know we we have a lot of very highly skilled workers in a very specific kind of work that they can't easily move to something else you know an entirely different industry but if you need highly skilled manufacturing workers okay well maybe we make you know, uh, in my area in Scunthorpe, it's it's wind turbines and solar panels that they're looking at making instead. Um, but at the minute, that's being done through government subsidy. Uh, I would rather it were done by tax breaks to encourage businesses to to locate in particular areas. If only there was a factory tax you could abolish by giving people full <laughs> expensing on on machinery, not just machinery, but also buildings in the future. Well, on on the note of uh, how we can fix problems or perhaps make some worse. Let's move on to our next discussion about Great British Railways. The 
government has announced plans to abolish the franchise system and establish a new national brand known as Great British Railways, which sounds incredibly cringe to me, I have to say. Maybe I'm just a, a real anti-patriotic. I'm, I'm a terrible anti-Britain. Um, and Great British Railways is due to maintain the tracks uh, as well as the signalling and some of the largest stations. Uh, they're also likely to take charge of timetables, ticketing and revenue. Um, so I guess the kind of context for this is that, as we all know, um, railway privatization was a huge failure. Or was it, Matthew? Oh, that's a bit of a leading question, isn't it? Thank you, my friend, Daniel. Well, of course, uh, despite recent political discourse, I, I don't think you can make a particularly strong argument that privatization in, in itself has been a failure. Uh, we have to remember, of course, Britain's railways were built by private companies in the 19th century, and that's what gave the UK a world-leading network of trains. It was in the mid-20th century when the government nationalised the system, whilst at the same time it was obviously facing difficulties from increasing car transport, that, that there was huge underinvestment, there was um, the bleaching cuts, which, which really diminished the system, and a huge dive in passenger numbers. Um, since the, the kind of privatisation we've seen in the 1990s, the number of rail journeys has, has more than doubled from 761 million to over 1.7 billion a year in 2019. There's been newer and faster services, improved safety, billions invested, got newer trains. Um, and despite the myth that Brits don't tend to actually pay substantially more in fares, particularly for off-peak fares, than similar train journeys in other countries. Now, I don't think that's to say that privatisation has worked perfectly. And, and I think the government's right that the existing franchise system is broken. It, can, it creates a weird situation where a franchise would bid to operate a certain train line, but they'd be incentivized to basically overestimate how much money they're going to make and make some bullshit predictions in order to get the contract. And then when that didn't work out and, and they went bust, the government has had to step in on, it, on the Northern franchise and I think it's the, the East Coast mainline franchise. And that's been a, a bit messy. And at the same time, what you've really created is a weird both coordination problems uh, as well as a weird monopolistic system. So you have coordination problems between National Rail, which is a state-run system, which is responsible for a lot of the delays on the train lines. At the same time, though, you've given power to one company to operate the lines. So I, I ultimately have liked to have seen a kind of a different model of privatisation rather than what we currently have, which seems to be in some ways worked, but in other ways, the worst of all worlds. Yeah, Emma, do you, you kind of agree with Matthew there that real privatisation has never been tried? Uh, or even <laughs> if the, the privatisation that has been tried has still been a kind of improvement on what we had before? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think no one can say that the that universally British trains were going well. There were some places, you know, as Matthew says, you know, passenger numbers have rocketed, journeys have increased, that's all great. Um, there are or have been in the recent years lines that had open access operators where you had a choice. You know, I, I live in, I'm from Scunthorpe, so when I went home, I usually had a choice of three different operators. Some tickets were cheaper, some were more expensive, some had a, more, a comfier train, some had better catering. I was able to make a choice and each of those was running multiple trains an hour. Whereas if I wanted to get the train to Manchester, you're stuck because the franchise has been awarded for 10 to 15 years. It's then effectively a, a monopoly for that period of time. So where there was real competition, passenger satisfaction was higher, tickets were cheaper, you had more options. Um, and also Matthew's right to point out that the majority of the delays, I think it's about 60%, are from track failure, signal failure. None of that is in the remit of the private companies running the trains. That's the national operator that was, that was responsible for that. So yeah, I think... 
I think a lot of the dissatisfaction with trains in this country is driven by pre-pandemic by commuters. I think commuters travelling into central London who say, oh, my train is incredibly expensive, you know, and, and they are right. They pay a very expensive, uh, you know, monthly or, or yearly season ticket. The trains are incredibly overcrowded, especially in the south. They're often delayed, cancelled with no explanation. That is true and certainly you know, should be looked at. But I don't think the answer to that is the system that's currently being proposed by the government. I think it sounds very, um, as you say, real privatisation has never been tried. I think we should have privatised more of it, not less of it. There, there's been some kind of some support for this from uh, ostensibly free market circles, the move to great british railways specifically an op-ed from uh henry hill in capex talking about how actually this, this could be a good thing from a free market perspective and one of the points that he makes is not directly relevant to rail policy but he's talking about how actually there's a kind of unionist aspect to this and if we started draping union jacks on our trains in the same way that some of the, the scots do for for their trains then we, we could have some some positive benefits here but do we think that more broadly the the government's new model is actually going to be effective? Is it going to make any positive changes or actually is this just a complete slide back into the, the bad old days of British Rail? I think there's potential benefit that could come from better coordination on the system. Uh, it's hard to spot exactly where the failures were um, between National Rail and the franchises. I think there, there can be less buck passing in future. There will be one body responsible on, on the additional uh, side of it you could say well perhaps now it's nationalized people's expectations won't be so high and um, that maybe a reason the dissatisfaction was so high was precisely because um people had a higher expectation from privately run trains uh, it's worth noting though of course that the government will still be contracting out operation of the trains on based upon their timetables they'll be paying private companies to to with the Great British Railways livery on the trains to operate the trains, kind of like um, the, the London Overground. So it's not completely zero private sector involvement. Although I think overall the, the negatives of this are outweighing any potential benefits. So there's, there's little incentive. If you're one of those private operators, you're just getting paid a kind of standard amount by the government. There's no incentive to innovate or improve the service or build a brand that provides a quality service to people. That's all going to be state run now. And it's effectively National Rail, isn't it going to be GBR? And that's not an organisation that's particularly innovative or entrepreneurial. It's a state bureaucracy. And you're going to have a lower quality of service in the end, I would like to ultimately see the government go down one of two alternative paths when it comes to railways. And you can make an argument that splitting the railways, as, as kind of Treasury did in, in the 90s, between the track operators and the train operators wasn't necessarily a good idea and that you'd be better to go down a kind of Japanese-style model where, it, or even how it kind of operated historically in the UK in the 19th century where you have one owner of both the the trains and the tracks and then give them contracts 15 20 30 years so that there's a big incentive for them to invest into the system if they also own land around the train stations and have they their permission to develop those train stations they can do what they do in japan which is build shopping centers on top top of train stations so there's kind of some big incentives there to develop improve the system to get more customers get more people through your trains and um, rather than this this weird coordination problem or the alternative to that uh, and this is what emma i think was getting to which is which is open access and there's something the ASI's written about previously and adrian Klein and, and sophie Jarvis did a paper on a few years ago and i think the iea has done quite a number of papers on this as well which is allow different companies to compete 
on the same train lines at different times. It's not coordination issues, but at least you get some competition, you get some variability in services. But the government's gone down neither of those routes, of course, and instead just effectively more centralised, more state-directed system. And I don't think that's going to have a particularly positive outcome. Yeah, for me, that that kind of track and train solution has been so clearly effective in in japan which is kind of world renowned for having one of the best rail systems in the world and and it's a classic reason you know it's just having ownership rights over something and and having potential to to make changes to increase your profit as one of the companies that's involved in running the track it fairly clearly will be a good incentive to deliver a better service and and to encourage more customers to to get on board so to speak but there, there is kind of i think the broader there's a couple of broader structural issues here that I don't think that either um, track and train style reforms or even open access are, are likely to to really affect. And the first is that there does seem to be a kind of longer term move um, towards reduced passenger numbers that's just starting to creep in over the, the past few years. Um, and I think that's you know secular or, or like um, exogenous to to the quality of our train systems themselves and. There's also, of course, I think this is more, more relevant to, when it comes to policy, is HS2. Um, quite simply, the prospect of HS2 eating up both the the kind of political resources and the, the financial resources of the British state when it comes to focusing on this new Great British Railways idea. I think that you're, you're going to have, you know, classic economic problem, scarcity in the face of, of everything here. And what you're going to have is a lot of the government departments involved whether it's you know department for transport here or the treasury when it comes to the money having to decide which they're going to invest the most time and resources in um, and they can't do both and if we are as we seem to be serious about continuing with the uh, the white elephant that is hs2 then we're going to end up with a real problem in making any sort of success out of great british railways i don't think it's going to deliver even the benefits that, that we might be able to hope for as, as skeptical as we are. Yeah, in, in the medium term, I think the biggest concern about this model is the fact that it, it does depend on the government doing the investment. Um, over the last 15 years or so, there's been about £10 billion of private sector investment from uh, the, the franchises into the railway system. Um, they're not going to be as inclined to spend that money if they, they, they don't have the potential for, for future profits. And as a result of that, it's going to depend on the government spending a lot of money. And we've already got other fiscal pressures. And the HS2 is a huge sink of cash when it comes to railway investment. So if, if your goal is to solve, as Emma said, the commuter train problems, you're not going to have the cash to do that if you're spending all the money building a, a high-speed line up and down the country. There are trade-offs to be made. Well, and a lot of this is built on, you know, HS2 especially built on the on the business case for, you know, co- making commuter travel easier. Well, we've all spent the last year not commuting, not traveling. You know, what is the point necessarily in being able to get to Birmingham or Manchester a little bit quicker so you can do your business meeting at 9.30 and head back on the train at lunchtime if you can sit in the office, do it on Zoom and have no commuter time whatsoever? That, that is going to play into uh, especially the, a reduction in business travel that I think will... 
will probably come back, but certainly not for a couple of years. I think it will come back very quickly and then fall again because people will go, oh, I've not been able to have a meeting. I'd love to jump on the train to Edinburgh and then realise actually that time could be a lot better spent if they sat in the office again. They'll remember what meetings are like very quickly and, and sit at home again. <laughs> didn't mind this kind of orthodoxy after all it's, uh, it's i find the best thing about a remote meeting is just the fact that you don't have to travel you don't have to deal with the awkwardness at the end as like you're leaving their office or they're leaving your office i don't know my, my walk into the lounge to get this podcast my legs are still aching ah <laughs> uh, yes thoughts and prayers thoughts and prayers uh, well, I think that's probably uh, a good point to draw this episode of The Pin Factory to a close. Uh, this has been The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. Uh, if you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. I've had the pleasure today of being joined by my co-host Matthew Lesh, as well as Emma Revel, who is the Head of Public Affairs at the IEA. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again next week for more fantastic political, economic and philosophical chat. Mm-hmm.